Welcome to the Redneck Dentist Podcast. I am Doc Mike, host of the podcast. A series of Forrest Gump-like events have brought me to where I am, a small-town country dentist. My experiences in country living, country freedom, country dentistry, and my reactions to pertinent current events will help you live a life of more freedom and less worry. Thank you for choosing the Redneck Dentist Podcast. So let's get to today's freedom-inspiring episode. Hey, this is Doc Mike, the Redneck Dentist. Thanks for joining me live here on Real Liberty Media. Or if you're listening on podcasts, I appreciate that too. If you want to join the conversation, come to reallibertymedia.com. Get in the chat room, say hello, let's have some, you know, friendly chat going on. Um, I'm usually looking at it, but sometimes I miss it. Uh, man, it's Mother's Day weekend, so happy Mother's Day for all you mothers who deserve it. <laughs> I don't know why I said it like that, it sounds horrible. Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> Sorry. Ah, uh, that's funny in a stupid kind of way. Okay. Um. Yeah, so it's Mother's Day weekend. I hope you do something nice. If you still have your mom, that's awesome. If you miss your mom, I'm sorry. And uh, But it is that weekend. We're looking forward to some fun stuff tomorrow, I'm sure. Although I didn't really plan anything. Um, but I, I need to make just a couple little adjustments here. Okay. I think I'll be okay with that. Let's see, it's been a crazy freaking week, although I don't think a week goes by anymore where I'm not saying that, but uh, this week around the homestead, I'll give you guys what updates I have. Oh, I did want to mention this. I'm putting some videos up on BitChute, uh, Rumble, and Odyssey, so if you guys would, now let me just, I'm going to put in a little qualifier here. I need better lighting, which I'm working on. But other than that, go over and listen to the uh, the um, videos and just give me some feedback on that. That would be awesome. They're like five minutes long. I'm, I'm doing a little short takes for a while uh, just to see what that's like. You know, the awesome thing about podcasting and streaming and whatever is you really don't need a ton of equipment. And you really don't have to look that professional. I mean, look how many people just are sitting in their homes doing the... Well, recently I've been watching some reaction videos. Uh, I watch uh, I watch a couple people who are content creators on YouTube. One of them is a bush pilot in Papua New Guinea. And one of them is this woman from the Netherlands who rides her motorcycle all over the world. It's crazy. That podcast or YouTube channel is called Itchy Boots, and the other one is called Missionary Bush Pilot. And um, you can check either one of those out if you want. But the, the cool thing is you don't really have to have a ton of awesome equipment. You really need some just basic equipment, which is really nice. So you can, like, do your podcast. You know, you can get it. Even if... Hey, even if nobody listens to you or watches you, you can have fun doing it. And um, I, I just think it's 
Seriously? <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> One of those things. You have a you have a home studio <laughs> and people just go about life like nothing's going on. That was pretty funny. <laughs> I did, that really caught me off guard, but it made me laugh. That's awesome. Oh gosh, especially with everything that goes on in the world every day, man. You got to be having fun. I am, you know, I always try and have fun no matter what it is I'm doing. I mean, my, you know, my idea of fun is different than I'm sure everybody else's, basically. But I pretty much try and have done fun doing whatever it is I'm doing. I still really enjoy dentistry. I know I talk about retirement all the time. And no kidding, my staff knows like every single day I say something about when I'm going to cut back my hours and when I'm going to retire. And I mean, I really probably won't retire for about five more years. But I'm definitely not going to be working three or four days a week. Uh, Yeah, maybe. You know, whenever I say that, I think of what's going on in the world right now with dentistry. You guys have heard me talk about this before. There, 20% of the dentists in the United States are within retirement age in the next two years. I would be willing to bet most dentists who are at that point are probably going to call it quits. Um you know, for a lot of reasons, you can probably figure it out yourself. Number one, they've probably made a ton of money. Number two, you know, there's younger people waiting in the wings to take over practices and, you know, they can provide the care that you've been providing for years. Um, number three, the government overreach, you know, getting involved. I'm not kidding. This is funny. I really didn't expect to talk about this today, but here we go. You think that um, when, when you're practicing in medicine or dentistry, um, the government is so involved, which I understand, you know, you got to protect the public. I get that. And, and believe me, there are dentists out there that the public needs protection from. No doubt. Um, there's dentists out there that are mechanically doing work and getting paid for it, and they really don't give a crap about dentistry, and they really don't give a crap about you. They're just, you know, raking in the money. And trust me, I know those people. I've heard it firsthand. I'm usually appalled because they don't seem to really care about what they're doing. And they don't usually have the patient's best interest at heart so you get, you know, mediocre dentistry, probably clinically acceptable dentistry, and it's probably not, you know, the best solution for you. Uh, I think a lot of times it's, you know, the most expensive. I mean, I've heard this argument before. I've even said this to people. I do say this to people. This is what I say to somebody who... Let's say a person comes in, has a massively broken tooth, but it's salvageable. I say, listen, um, the best treatment for that tooth at this time is a crown. 
you need to get a crown on that tooth if you want to make sure to make that tooth last the longest. But I can fill that tooth for you. I don't know how long it'll last. I'll do the best job I can. You're going to have to take care of it, but you really need to get a crown on that tooth. Well, if a crown is $2,000 and a filling is 600 bucks, you know, most people are going to go with this $600 thing until they can figure out how to get a crown. And, um, you know, that's the way that goes. But I know a lot of dentists will say, well, you need to get a crown on this tooth. And, uh, you know, nothing else is going to be acceptable. And I'm not saying that those people are lying. They're not really lying. You know, and is their practice, is it malpractice? No, it's not malpractice. Because what they're telling you is, you know, you need a crown on this tooth, and I'm not willing to do anything else that, you know, is going to fail or may likely fail, and then you're going to come back to me and say I did a crappy filling. So dentists won't even... Sometimes they won't even try and fill a tooth that could be filled because they don't want to look stupid when the filling fails. I don't mind looking stupid, I guess. <laughs> because because I know that I can do I can do a satisfactory job fixing a tooth and making it last maybe a few years until you figure out how you're going to get a crown for your tooth. But anyway, back to my point. There's so many dentists getting ready to leave the profession in the next couple of years, man. It's 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 getting tough. So every time I think about retiring, I think, well, who's going to fill this spot? Because where I am out here, you know, in the country, this little clinic down the street, you know, it we do a lot of work. We see a lot of patients. I see three columns of two columns of patients all day long, and we squeeze in some patients in the third column. So I'm busy. I mean, that's 16 to 20 patients a day, and that's a, that's a lot of work. And then when I think about, you know, backing off of that, you know, uh, I think, well, who's going who's gonna to fill this? Who is going to fill this void, you know? Um, they're not going to probably find some young guy who wants to come out here and live in the sticks and, you know, there's no amenities out here. It's not like you're going to go to the theater every night. I mean, you might, but it's just a, you know, a theater, you know, and there's not a lot of food places to choose from. The school is probably okay, you know, average, maybe a little better than average. Um, but it's a little tiny town out in the middle of, you know, nowhere. And if you want to raise a family and have some social life, you know, and be, I guess, part of the metropolitan life in the big city, well, you're not getting it here. So I worry <laughs> because the other thing is, you know, the young dentists these days are coming out of school with so much debt. I mean, they're not going to come to work for, you know, $200,000 a year um, unless you're going to also pay off their loan. So I don't know what's going to happen. But, you know, every time I think about, like, closing the door, or walking out, I'm like, well, people still need care, you know. So I'm also doing this thing I've talked about before where I'm going to go down and do root canals on kids, kids who have adult teeth that need root canals, and they need to be put to sleep for some reason. We're working on that. There's a big backlist there. 
So I'd like to get that kind of caught up before I retire. So who knows, man? But, you know, it looks like that time's coming. Uh, hang on one sec. Okay. But that's really not what I wanted to talk about, but, uh, but we did. We covered it. Okay, so here's some updates around the uh, homestead. Number one, like we are still in full rain mode here in Oregon. Um, we're already, we already have, I don't know, an inch and a half of rain in May, which is actually usually one of the sort of drier months. Um, it's good for the, for the drought, you know, the drought we're having, uh, but it is delaying some planting. Also, the meat birds that we grew, we had them processed. They're in the freezer now. They're also delicious, which is fantastic. Um, I didn't know this, but uh, the local processor, if your chicken is over eight pounds, they charge you a little extra. And we had two over eight pounds, and the rest were uh, about seven, between seven and eight pounds. One a little smaller, a six-pounder. But anyway, so those birds are all done. And now we're kind of we're kind of rolling toward that self-sufficiency system that we're that we have in place where we're going to be hatching our own meat birds, growing our own meat birds, and processing our own meat birds. And we're doing that because we want to be able to grow provide meat, you know, when there's gonna when there's a shortage, we would like to be able to share with others. And the only way I can see making that, you know, financially feasible is just to do it ourselves. Besides, I don't know, probably everybody's gonna be buying up those meat chicks. And um you know, we just wanna we just wanna see how to do it ourselves. Man, people did this forever you know, by themselves before, well, before now for sure. So it can't be that difficult. And we have an incubator that moves the eggs and keeps the temperature and humidity correct. And um, we've hatched chicks before. If you listen to the show last year, you know, we hatched one chick last year. That was a science pro project. Hang on, drink. But yeah, we did. So we know the system works, just a matter of putting it in action. And the other thing is, so the neighbors and us are actually trading some goods. Like they're, and I said this before, but I like to say it every time that I talk about the meat birds so everybody understands kind of the total program here, is the neighbors have dairy goats and a meat goat buck, and they are breeding their dairy goats with the meat goat bucks so we can have meat goats and milk, goat milk. So we are trading them chickens for goat milk, which will basically take care of any dairy needs that we have in, on homestead here um, because they produce a lot of milk. Now, of course, there will be a dry period too when the goats quit producing milk, but you can extend that as long as you can. You know, and I don't know, maybe store the milk for, I don't know, I don't know. Uh, but anyway, so that's the deal that we made with the neighbors, and the, that should work out pretty good. All right, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, one certain kind of knife that I think everybody should have as one of their tools. And I really kind of just started watching some of these videos lately on, on uh, bushcraft knives. 
And I guess bush crafting, I don't know. It seems to me like it's basically a survival knife. And actually, I'm going to read you a little bit about these knives. And there will be a link in the show notes where you could go shop for some of these knives. But, I mean, you know, it's pretty easy just to pull up a search and go look. But I will tell you the couple that I've purchased. Uh, I, I just received one this week. The other one was coming from the Netherlands. So uh, I have to wait a little bit for it. But, it's uh, I mean, it should be a really nice knife. And, you know, here's the thing. They're really, they're really a tool. Like, when you learn how to use a knife around, you know, the outdoors, basically, or in a survival mode, or just learn to use it, you know, every day, spend some time working on it, you know, try some of the, some of the skills that they show you in some of these videos, you get pretty handy with it, and you realize, man, this, this tool can come in really handy. Um, let me read a little bit. This was, I got this off some site, but uh, for those of you who don't know what is considered a bushcraft knife, here it is. Bushcraft knives, knives are often considered more generally as survival knives. They're designed to handle a wide range of outdoor tasks like building a shelter, starting a fire with a ferrule rod, and batoning, which means splitting wood with a knife, and a mallet or a stick used as a hammer. Bush knives are almost always fixed blade knives with long blades with a flat edge. By that, they mean that the backside of the knife is flat and the edge of the knife, of course, is sharp. Uh, short blades limit the thickness of the wood you can process with the knife and serrated edges aren't adept at the cutting and chopping task mentioned above. Bushcraft knives typically typically also have a grippy handle, which these days means that most are made of synthetic material, though some still do use wood. And what you're going to find is a bushcraft knife actually has kind of a heftier handle so that you can really get a grip on it. And I, I think the grippiness they're talking about is when you start working, like when you start, let's say you're out, you, you're, in survival mode, you've uh, survived a plane crash or crashed your car and got snowed in somewhere, and you need to build a shelter. Well, the handle of that knife is going to get pretty wet, like from you know using it in snow or rain, or let's say you're you're uh, processing an animal, you've killed a game animal, and you're processing the animal, you're going to get blood on the handle, and when that blood is fresh and liquidy, it's going to be slippery. Well, you don't want slippery uh, handle uh, uh, and a handle that actually becomes slicker when wet. You want a handle that you can actually get a grip on and maintain that grip through all the different motions that you're going to use that knife for. Hey, there is a great link. Thank you, Rob Works. The best, best bushcraft knives in 2022. I'm actually going to pull that up in a second. Actually, so let me go ahead and do that now. And I will see if those two that I bought are on the list. And if they're not, it doesn't matter. You know, the the thing about a bushcraft knife is find one that you like. Make sure it fits and it works for you. If it doesn't, sell it and buy another one. I mean, they're 
they're they're pretty stout instruments. Okay, so uh, what to look for in a bushcraft knife? Uh, when shopping for a bushcraft knife, you should first consider the core traits mentioned above. Some knives are marketed as bushcraft knives, even though they don't meet all these traits. You should also consider what you plan to use the knife for. Maybe you want a knife that you can use with a ferrule rod to start fires, but you don't plan to do any batoning, in which case you can get by with a smaller knife that's lighter and easier to pack. That's no kidding. These knives are not sissy knives. I mean, these. <laughs> this is a knife that when you think about packing for a hiking trip, you would hold this knife and think, hmm, how far am I hiking? <laughs> and how much other weight am I carrying? You know, and what kind of conditions am I going to be hiking in? Because let's say it's um, let's say you're in you're 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 hiking, trying to avoid other dangerous individuals. You would want a pretty stout bush knife, and you would probably sacrifice knowing that this knife is going to weigh a little more, but it's going to be worth it and may help save your life at some point. Whereas if you're just going on a, you know, Pacific Crest Trail or, a, you know, hike where people are pretty friendly and you don't have to worry about too much, you know, evil goings on along the trail, um, you could go with a lighter knife. And you may not need a big bush knife to take with you. But these can be pretty hefty knives, so beware when you're looking at them. Uh, but it is kind of cool. You watch what some of these people do with bush knives. And I know... Like, I know, when you, maybe when you watch these videos, you'll be like, oh, yeah, I know that. Oh, yeah, I know that. Oh, yeah, I know that. Well, and if you've done it, that's even better. And you may be thinking, like, well, when would I ever have to do that? For example, one of the videos I watched, a guy had a round from a piece of log. You know, he just had a round cut. And I don't, I'm fairly certain he didn't make that round with his bush knife but he he may have had something like a pocket uh saw you know piece of cable that you can cut through wood but i don't think so i think he just found the round and he made himself a stool using his bushcraft knife which was kind of cool and basically he just bored three holes in the round and he put you know kind of trimmed up three uh branches for the legs and he fashioned it so he could stick the legs into the holes and they would kind of snug up and then he had a stool to sit on i thought well that was pretty cool you know if you're going to be sitting somewhere a while you might not want to be sitting on the ground and you might have to make yourself a little bench like that and there's other ways to do it i'm sure if you watch some of these videos you're going to see a thousand uses for these bushcraft knives uh, look for a knife that has a full tang construction. This means that the steel that makes the blade also runs through the handle to the butt of the knife. This makes for a heavier knife, but a much more robust construction that will stand up to hammering and leveraging. And, whoops, hit the mic, sorry. Not all steel is the same. And maximizing one trait typically happens to the detriment of another. Most bushcraft knives prioritize toughness 
which is the measure of a blade's ability to withstand sudden impacts and forces, think chopping. Toughness often relates inversely to edge retention, which is why so many bushcraft knife blades use carbon steel, which is also easier to sharpen in the field. The downside to carbon steel is that it isn't as uh, resistant to corrosion as stainless steel. Again, there are always trade-offs, and it comes down to what you plan to use your knife for. Uh, the handles, wood handles might impart a classic look, but they're often not as grippy or lightweight as modern synthetic materials. Remember that a bushcraft knife is primarily a tool and you need to be able to use it as such, sometimes for long periods, without it slipping in your hand, and don't discount comfort either. So that's a little review of bushcraft knives. So let me look through this list, but i got to wet my whistle again here. K-Bar. Uh, K-Bar knives that the Marines have. That's a perfect... Oh, that's the first one that came up. And a matter of fact, that is the one I bought. So on the list... Um, that's in the chat room right now. I will bring it up. Uh, I will put that link in the show notes also. It's called GearHungry.com, and it says Best Bushcraft Knives. And number one, it says the K-Bar Becker BK2 Companion Bushcraft Knife. And that happens to be the one that already came. But yeah, I'm going to look through this list real quick. Those are beautiful-looking knives. Shorty there. Yeah, this is a good looking list. What does it say? This was the top what? Uh, best bushcraft knives. Oh, it didn't say how many, but there's eight, nine, ten. Uh, that number ten. Oh yeah, and there's a little. There you go. That's a great page. So at the bottom of that page. It says, uh, Bushcraft Knife Buyer's Guide and Frequently Asked Questions. There's a, some, looks like some great information on that site. And like I said, you know, you go looking for some information on these knives, you're going to find some really good videos and some really good knives. And, you know, this is one of those things where, like, I think this is one of those tools that you will be happy to spend a hundred or between a hundred and two hundred dollars on. I really do. I think in the long run you're gonna you're gonna get what you pay for and you're gonna get a a knife that is really tough and can withstand a lot of you know abuse. And and also remember, like I use some um, uh Speedy Sharp, I don't know if you guys know what a Speedy Sharp is, but it's like a pocket knife sharpener. It's just a, well, it's a pocket knife sharpener, and it's called a Speedy Sharp. <laughs> but I carry that when I'm carrying knives that I'm going to be using all the time. Otherwise, I just have them like in my pack, I have them in my car, I have them uh, in my, on my desk here. I have a tri-stone sharpener here for you know, keeping an edge on the on the knives in the house. But when you're out and about in the woods or backpacking, you want to make sure and carry a sharpener with you because, you know, these blades are going to work really well, but they're also not going to hold that edge great. I mean, probably it'll, you'll probably get through, I don't know, a month's worth of use 
I don't know about heavy use, but, you know, just daily using it, you know, it's probably going to be okay for a while. But the thing is, the more you keep up on that edge, like let's say every time you're done using your knife, you just, you know, put the edge back on that knife. It is going to last you so much longer, and it's always going to be ready when you need it. You're not going to have to... <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, I just uh, this is from the chat room. I just noticed the pick at the top of that page goes directly against the section at the bottom, how to use a bushcraft knife by pulling towards the body. Um, yeah, there's a saying that says, cut toward your buddy, not toward your body. Like, cut toward your buddy, not toward your body. I think that's a great tip to use. Yeah, don't pull a knife toward you. It's not a good idea. I mean, there's some rare circumstances where you might have to do it, but pretty much it's always better that that blade is going away from you. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you a crazy story. This was on a video. It was a bow hunting video. I'm pretty sure I mentioned this before, but I'm going to tell you here now because we're talking about knives. And it's a great story to relate about knives and, you know, kind of survival knives, knives, bushcraft knives. So this was a video, a commercially produced video, professional hunters going out and making videos uh, you know, for those of us not hunting to sit back and enjoy. <laughs> no, I was hunting at the time. Hang on. Dang it, allergies. Still killing me. Anyway, a guy takes down a big elk. And, you know, part of this video company was they kind of show everything. So he's dressing the elk. He, he had it gutted. Or he had it, oh yeah, he had it gutted and he was going to cut through the pelvis and he was standing, um, he was uh, slightly crouched down and he was pulling that knife toward him and you saw him slip and then he grabbed his, well, femoral artery because he had sliced his femoral artery and maybe the vein too and you know they went into full survival mode um, immediately because that can kill you pretty quickly yeah it was pretty scary and I, I'm sure it was a video I purchased like I have it somewhere but I, I don't remember where it is. I, I I might go look for it. But it was one of the craziest things I ever saw because they're not like next to a hospital. You know, they're out in the... Usually those guys, too, are out in the middle of nowhere because they're putting on... You know, they're putting on these shows where they're showing you how to call in elk and they're calling in the big ones so they have a big trophy to show at the end of the hunt. And, uh, yeah, they're out in the middle of nowhere. Now, probably they have, because they're out in the middle of nowhere, they probably have guys who have some experience doing, um, you know, first aid and life-saving. And, you know, maybe they have a hospital on standby. I'm not sure. But, uh, 
But anyway, yeah, that was kind of crazy. So that's the information I have about um, about bush knives. Look into it. It's a great tool to have. Oh, I didn't really. I got to open my notes. <laughs> uh, you know, it's kind of fun being just a rank amateur at this stuff. Okay, let's see what else I got here. I have my notes open. Oh, yeah, so the news that I got just before... Actually, no, the news I got right before I came on here. Did any of you watch the Kentucky Derby today? Holy crap. You talk about like a ginormous upset. This is what happened. Like a horse had to scratch kind of at the last minute. Like, I don't know, in the last couple of days, the guy who you know, was number whatever in the Kentucky Derby. He's like, oh, I can't do it. So they call up the next horse on the list like, hey, there's an opening at the Kentucky Derby. Kind of reminds me of me getting into dental school. That's a story for another time. So um, they call up this, you know, horse like, hey, we have an opening at the Kentucky Derby. You're welcome to come if you'd like. And, of course, they're like, yeah. Yeah, we'll do that. You know, we'd, we'd like to run in the Kentucky Derby. Frickin' horse is at 80 to 1 odd, odds, had 80 to 1 odds, the highest odds, because it's like impossible, this horse is going to win. And the frickin' horse won. And it was a fantastic race. Like, it was one of the fastest races, I think they said, in Kentucky Derby history. And that freaking horse, which was about third from the last, came charging forward and won the Kentucky Derby. Like, the, the jockey's first time at the Kentucky Derby, the horse's first time at the Kentucky Derby, you know, so many firsts and a long shot. Like, ridiculous odds to win. That horse wins the Kentucky Derby. How about that? Isn't that crazy? I mean, life just life's crazy. Like, like probably nobody imagined that would happen. And you know, I'm sure there were some people that were like, "I'm going to put some." I, you know, that looks like pretty good odds. I'm going to put some money down on that horse, like just for the hell of it. And he probably took home quite a bit of money, <laughs> eighty to one odds. Hey, but that was pretty awesome. I really enjoyed that. Okay, the next thing. Um, was uh, so that some Pfizer uh, executive got uh, arrested. Is that right? Let me see here. Oh, yeah, VP of Pfizer arrested after Pfizer documents get released. It says, Randy Johnson, the executive vice president of Pfizer, has been arrested at his home and charged with multiple counts of fraud by federal agents. No. No. This can't be. There's fraud involved with federal, I mean, with uh, Pfizer and their whole, uh, remember they wanted 75 years to produce the documents because it was going to take them. Do you remember I did a show on, on them wanting to redact so much stuff? And I was talking about, hell, you can just use a, 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 uh, a word processor to go and redact, you know, find every word that you, you know, want redacted and just, you know, 
redact it or take it out or black it out. And um, they wanted 75 years. They said there was so much, so many documents that they have to go through. And uh, thank God the government said no, because, I mean, like, with the current administration, I'm surprised that the government said no, we want the documents now. So anyway, they released the documents, and guess what? Somebody got arrested. Uh, he was arrested and charged with multiple counts of fraud by federal agents. He was then taken into custody and is awaiting a bail hearing. This comes as thousands of classified documents from Pfizer were released, showing the true risks of the experimental vaccine. And actually, I did read something kind of terrifying in this statement, too. Yeah, 1,200... Now, come on. We... We got to do better than this. And why the government hasn't stopped promoting this vaccine, I have no idea. 1,223 people died during Pfizer trials. That's not after they approved it and it hit millions of us. I don't even know how many people they gave it to in the trial, but it says... um, It's now confirmed that 1,223 people died within the first 28 days after being inoculated with the BioNTech Pfizer vaccine during trials, and it was still approved for use. Thank you so much, federal government, for looking out for us. You know, that's awesome how you just, you know, keep protecting us with your fantastic Food and Drug Administration and National Institute of Health and you know, public health service. Oh, and then we have the next thing. Rob, thanks for that leak, leak link. That was awesome. Uh, let me find this next article before I go on. Yeah. Okay, here we go. So I, I might have talked about this a little bit uh, last week, but China has recorded the first human infection with the H3N8 strain of bird flu. The country's health authority said on Tuesday, but said the risk of it spreading among people was low. Where did we hear that before? A four-year-old boy from central Henan province was found to have been infected with the variant after developing a fever and other symptoms on April 5th. No close contacts were infected with the virus, the National Health Commission said in a statement, which I'm sure we can believe them, right? (laughs) No, we can't. So I said, I'm absolutely sure this didn't come from a lab. I'm absolutely sure that anybody inquiring about this will find that this avian flu virus did not come from a lab, but there is some interesting things to look at. On March 26, 2008, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation grants $1.3 million for pandemic flu research. The University of Wisconsin-Madison has received a $1.3 million grant Now remember, this is 2008 we're going back to from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to support research aimed at 
understanding the molecular features that lead to influenza pandemics. The school announced yesterday UW-Madison will collaborate with Maryland-based biotech company Lentigen Corp. on the project. As part of the grant, the Wisconsin Alumni Research Foundation, called WARF, and Lentigen Corp. have agreed to broadly disseminate the knowledge generated in this project to the scientific community. This means the key pieces of the intellectual property created during the project will be donated by WARF to the international research community in an effort to improve human health across the globe. Led by influenza researcher Yoshihiro Kawaoka, the project will use high-throughput screening systems to sift through influenza viral protein libraries to identify mutations that would allow avian influenza to infect humans. What? Why? (laughs) Why? So just in case, back in 2008, just in case, Avian flu infected humans? Now, I remember we were kind of tracking avian flu when I did that whole tracking thing for the U.S. government back in 2001. Um, Avian flu was on the list way back then, but here we are, 2008. Bill and Melinda Gates are funding research to make sure that, you know, we have (laughs) the ability to find uh, identified mutations that would allow avian influenza to infect humans. Now, I want to make sure, you know, every, not the same people listen every week. I'm sure I have I'm sure I have new listeners every week. So just so you know, um, there's a huge avian flu-like pandemic going on right now. Not only in the United States, well, it's a pandemic, so it's, you know, everywhere. But I noticed the UK is losing a bajillion birds, the United States losing a bajillion birds. Like whether or not, you know, because they're birds, it's just like people are, you know, burning birds or I don't know, they're probably incinerating them or whatever. Like crazy, uh, maybe it doesn't get as much attention yet, but when people find out in a year that there's no chicken nuggets, (laughs) that there's no chicken tenders, you know, at Mickey D's, well, actually... They can use any other kind of meat in those things, I'm sure. But when you go to the store and you can't buy chicken, when you go to KFC or Popeyes or Churches or uh, El Pollo Loco or you know any of your favorite chicken places, and you can't get chicken because there's no chicken to be had, or you go to the store to buy a chicken and it's 40 50 bucks because there's such a shortage and such a high demand, which is why we are doing them ourselves at this time. Then you might be wondering, you know, what happened to all the chickens? And people might start asking questions like, hey, did this avian flu come from a lab? But Jesus Christ, I mean, we haven't been able to really nail down the fact that the uh, COVID-19 virus came from Wuhan lab. And I mean, I, like many other reasonable people, Reasonable people are 100% sure that it did come from that lab. I mean, it makes the most sense. I'm not going to get into that whole argument again because I still want to talk 
about more stuff from Bill and Melinda Gates. So uh, I want to see when this was. Let me bring up this link. This was, no, I'm not giving you my information. This was, oh no, this says it was posted on in August of 19. Okay, so it could have been. This is a single, this was another bunch of investment that Bill and Melinda Gates made to, you know, more viral research. This is the single biggest investment in the immunology of livestock in the UK from an international funder and the British Society for Immunology will do all we can to support this collaborative initiative and help maximize its impact for the benefit of human and animal health, commented Dr. Doug Brown, chief executive of the British Society for Immunology. And again, uh, the purpose of that, and this one is, uh, I'm going to just read some of these. Seven of the grants have been signed and were uh, signed and were announced. Another remains to be finalized. Grantees include the same guy, Yoshihiro Kawaoka, Kawaoka, a star in the flu world who splits his time between University of Tokyo and the University of Wisconsin. The grants finalized so far. Now listen to these. This is crazy. Uh, I don't know if I yeah, the names probably. I'll say the names. Alice McCarty, the Helmholtz Center for Infection Research, who will design variants of the influenza surface protein neuraminidase that have improved stability. It is thought that inclusion of more neuraminidase and flu vaccine would promote a more robust and broadly neutralizing antibody response. John Satcha, the Vaccine and Gene Therapy Institute, Oregon Health and Science University, who proposes to use a Trojan horse virus approach, inserting conserved influenza virus sequences into a stealth vector virus to stimulate T-cell immune response in the lung. This all sounds like it's very good for us, doesn't it? Jonathan uh, Haney, the Laboratory of Viral Zoonotics, Zoonotics, University of Cambridge, who will use existing DNA vaccine approach for influenza. Karaoka, who will use a cocktail of synthetic proteins designed to focus the immune system's response to vaccine on parts of flu viruses that are common to all flu viruses. Peter Kwong, the Vaccine Research Center, National Institute of Allergy, and infectious disease who will apply lessons from HIV, I'll bet they will, uh, research to identify sites of vulnerability, vulnerability suitable to the development of a universal influenza vaccine, right? A universal influenza vaccine. That sounds like that platform thing they were talking about. Patrick Wilson, Antibody Biology Lab, University of Chicago, who will mine a library of human antibodies to influenza to design a new protein sequence for a novel potent vaccine that should provoke a broader antibody response. Martin Carplus, Harvard University, who will use a computational approach to design an improved flu vaccine tailored to generate production of antibodies 
that are active against a broad spectrum of influenza strains. So I'm absolutely sure that that avian flu virus didn't come from all these billions of dollars donated to these institutions of higher learning and companies that are purely uh, vaccine companies. I'm sure that money didn't generate this avian flu that somehow infects human beings. I'm positive that that money didn't do that, right? You too? Yeah, so here we go again. Did that virus come from a lab? My money's on yes. My money is on all of that research money going to figure out how to make flu viruses infect human lung tissue quicker, more efficiently. And I'm pretty sure that's where most of our future pandemics are coming from. Man-made viruses. They're getting us one way or another. All right, so I've been talking about the perfect storm for literally months. I'm fairly certain. I'd have to go back and look. I've been talking about the perfect storm for a long time. Well, Epoch Times finally did a story called the perfect storm. (laughs) I don't think it was called that. Let's go see. They need credit where credit's due. It is called the perfect storm hitting U.S. crop planting amid talk of shortages. And here's kind of a, luckily they kind of summarized this pretty well. Um, So, because uh, it's stuff I've talked about. Due to soaring fertilizer costs and chemical shortages and protracted drought conditions, farmers are now planting different and smaller quantities of certain crops. The United States Department of Agriculture conducted a survey of producers across the country which showed intentions to plant a record high 91 million acres of soybeans in 2022. This would be an increase of 4% from last year. However, corn growers surveyed across 11 states revealed a planting forecast of only 89.5 million acres this year, This represents a production drop of 4%, which, now remember, the federal government wants us to put E15 on our gas year-round because that's how they think they're going to get us out of the gas crunch. But look, the corn that they usually make E15 out of, ethanol, we're going to have 4% less already this year. And corn is in everything. Like 80% of the products in stores and supermarkets are have contain some portion of corn byproduct in them. Now we're going to produce less corn, 4% less, when we're already having shortages because of fuel, because of fertilizer, because of you know everything else, uh, drought conditions. Now we're <clears throat> actually going to plant fewer. Uh, acres of corn, 4% fewer acres of corn this year, and what corn is produced, the federal government wants part of that uh, converted into fuel. It's genius. I, I don't know. I don't know where these people get their ideas. 
And I don't understand. They have to be doing this on purpose. They have to absolutely be causing the most amount of pain possible. Because there's no way somebody hasn't said along the way, hey, you know, if we take food off the market, there'll be less food for people, which means some people might die. I'm sure with all of these brilliant cabinet members, all of these fantastic freaking um, uh, committees that they have, all of these departments that are supposed to do one thing or another, food and drug administration, like food and drug administration, U.S. Department of Agriculture, like somebody in there isn't saying, hey, uh, you know people are going to die if we put corn into gas tanks instead of into stomachs. Somebody has to be saying that. So that means that the other, those listening are going, yeah, we know people are going to die. That's kind of part of the problem. That's just a side effect of inflation and the Russia-Ukraine war. The Russians will blame the Russians for all those deaths. Uh, additionally, wheat planting is the fifth lowest since 1919. Over a hundred years, wheat planting is the fifth lowest since 1919. Can you even imagine? Like 1919, what was the population in the United States then? I mean, it wasn't anything close to what it is now. And and this is the fifth lowest amount of wheat? Like for making bread? <laughs> oh, It says, for lack of a better pun, it's the perfect storm we are having fertilizer shortages, and also general chemicals related to agriculture. Fertilizer supplies in the United States have suffered a series of setbacks that began with the pandemic-related supply chain issues, creating a noticeable scarcity in 2021. Because of corn's versatile use in food products, experts predict planting shortages will continue to generate higher prices for maize, the cost of which has already risen 5.5% this year. This would affect multiple consumer goods, from corn flour to starch and high fructose corn syrup. That's only three things that corn is actually like a, a, a major part of. There are a... Okay, I'm exaggerating. There are a thousand ingredients that come from corn, like Dextra meth, uh, dext, oh, dextrose for one. Um, there, there's like a thousand of them. If you just, if you ever watch that movie called Food Inc., if you haven't watched it, I recommend you watch it. It's an excellent movie. But it actually talks about all of the things that come out of growing corn, all of the byproducts of corn. And it is a ton of stuff. So just imagine that 5%, 5.5% increase in cost of maize is going to come out in every other product that uses corn byproducts. 
So there's going to be that 5.5% increase in cereals that you feed your kids, like, you know, our grandkids eat cereals. Uh, you know, pancake, uh, it's, it's in everything. I mean, except for fresh and raw foods. I don't think you'll find corn byproducts in there, but, but anyway, that, so the, so, so again, another crop, although I probably talked about it before, but another significant crop whose cost is going to continue to increase. There was 104 million people here in July of 1919. So three times as many people, and we're producing, we're the fifth lowest uh, amount of wheat being planted uh, since 1919. That is insane to me. What I was saying is, so 5.5% of... Uh, Cost increase will filter out through every other product that you buy in the store that's in a box, in a package, in a mix, or whatever. Um, let's see. Because of corn's versatile use, and yeah, 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 I read that. Uh, cereal and grain product prices will also likely rise by 7% on store shelves this year. Um Though profits and shortages aside, drought remains a significant factor in some of the planting changes U.S. farmers are making this year. Yeah, no doubt. And guess what? We are just about done. So uh, if you guys haven't had a chance to go out and check out some of my uh, videos, please do that over on BitChute. I did a little short thing about Bette Midler that you might find maybe out of character for me, but it's I think it was fun to do. So uh, go check out BitChute, Rumble, or Odyssey. Uh, Redneck Dentist, is, you just look for Redneck Dentist, you'll find those videos. And especially you guys who are live in the chat room, um, give me some give me some feedback on the whole idea. So basically I'm doing a thing, it's called Take 5 with Doc Mike, basically, or the Redneck Dentist, or something like that. And it's uh, five minutes or five topics, whichever comes first. And so it's really short. And Thank you, you for listening to that. the Hey, Redneck thanks for Dennis joining podcast. me today. I look forward to seeing Please you guys show your Wednesday and Sunday This podcast at 9 is not on Eastern the biggest thing. platforms, but it is on the best free speech platform. Until next time, remember, all bleeding eventually stops. Thank you for listening to the Redneck Dentist Podcast. Please show your support for the podcast. This podcast is not on the biggest platforms, but it is on the best free speech platforms. Until next time, remember, all bleeding eventually stops.